Welcome to this BJSM podcast, and it's a great pleasure to have Robert Jan de Vos and also Adam Weir on the call from Netherlands. Now, Robert Jan had a big impact with a paper in JAMA earlier this year, and uh, we'll start with you, Robert Jan. Thanks for joining the call today. Hi, Karim. Thank you. Now, tell us about your current work in sports medicine just briefly to begin with. Yeah, I'm uh, currently working as a registered sports medicine uh, in the Hague Medical Center in the Netherlands. And in January of this year, I already started uh, with my internship in the orthopedics. Great. And so you've got um, clinical experience on top of your terrific research. So let's jump straight into PRP, um, platelet-rich plasma. It had a lot of attention and you've given it a lot of thought yourself. So do you think this is an important new treatment that uh, we'll benefit from? Well, well. Our study didn't show uh, any benefits after a PAP injection uh, compared to a placebo injection. Um, so we do not recommend it. I cannot tell whether it wouldn't benefit any patients and, and whether uh, future research will show any benefit uh, after it uh, because there are so many variables that may be important. So, well, it, it's an interesting therapy, but... Uh, well, I think many questions are still unanswered, and um, well, we proved it with our study, I think. If we talk about tendons in the first instance, you certainly didn't have any encouraging results, but you reviewed the literature thoroughly yourself, so why do you see the conflict in the tendon results between yours and the published papers? Uh, well, I think that the previous publications had some limitations, but there may also be some other differences. The use of, of calcium before activation, some uh, some authors used it and, uh, and showed promising uh, results after a PUP injection in the patella tendinopathy. Uh, but other variables may be uh, of interest, like the concentrations of the platelets, also, the number of injections. Uh, some authors use uh, multiple injections, and we also uh, we only use uh, one injection. Uh, so this may also be an important difference. Uh, the volume uh, to inject. We injected four cc of uh, PRP um, at three locations within the Achilles tendon, and so there are many variables that. We don't know whether it is important for uh, for the results in tendinopathy. I'm assuming you're not using it in your clinical practice at the moment, but what would it take for you to start using PRP for tendinopathies? What would you need to see in a paper to change your position? Well, if another study can prove uh, that uh, there is a benefit of, uh, of PRP and there may be some variables that are different than in our study, then we know that perhaps these uh, variables are, are very important for the healing of tendons. And I think then we have to well, change some things uh, in the preparation of PRP or the way to inject or in the rehabilitation program. But I think future studies will prove that, whether that's important. So I know you used exercise with PRP in your study. Let's talk about exercise um, Tell us the exercise protocol you used in your group. Well, for the first week, uh, we told the patients that they had to take some rest. And, and after the first week, they had to start some stretching exercises because well, we are not sure what the impact was of the PRP injection. Uh, so we uh, didn't want to start with a, a heavy load eccentric exercise protocol. 
uh, we started that after two weeks, the known uh, Alfredson uh, protocol of uh, 12 weeks, 180 repetitions daily. We used the same protocol, so the exercises had to be painful and uh, they had to be performed daily. So it was the same uh, program as published before. And how did you find that patients complied with that Alfredson program? And it's it's been widely used. It'd be great to hear your experience of patients' actual perceptions and experience. Well, in, in our previous study, we uh, already found that it's, it's really hard for patients to adhere to uh, these exercises. We tried to uh, register all the, the compliance of the patients. and We asked them which amount of the exercises they performed. Around uh, 75% of the exercises were performed. At least the patients reported that, but it's, it's really hard for them and they always tell me it, it's very painful and uh, they're truly satisfied when the program is, uh, is over after 12 weeks. And do you think the groups got better because they did the exercise program or do you think this was just sort of a natural time healing? What's your impression from the improvement in the visa score? in your study patients? I think the most important question, whether it's uh, due to the exercises or due to the introduction of a needle or just the time, and I think uh, it is the last one. I think time has the uh, most impact and uh, the exercise may help a bit. Um, we uh, performed one uh, RCT previously we compared uh, the effect of a night spin to a night spin combined with the uh, eccentric exercises. And we found comparable results to the PRP study. So I think uh, needling uh, does not have an additional effect. Well, it's very hard to uh, to perform some placebo uh, exercises. So it's very hard to determine whether it's the time or uh, just the exercise. Interesting, but it sounds like you're a bit skeptical about the exercises. Uh, well, I think currently it's the best evidence to uh, uh, to perform uh, the eccentric exercise for uh, Achilles tendinopathy. Uh, but well, it, it, it's not. Um, it, uh, it, it's very hard to perform a study in which uh, placebo exercises are um, are done. There's one study in which uh, concentric exercises are compared to eccentric exercises, in which uh, there was a benefit of uh, eccentric exercises. But uh, these uh, uh, programs uh, were completely different. So uh, I'm not sure whether the eccentric component is uh, really of importance. Thanks, Robert. And we'll ask Adam to jump in here. Adam is a sports physician in Netherlands as well. And I know he worked closely with you on the PRP study. So, Adam, what do you want to add as far as uh, treatment and management goes in this situation? Yeah, I think... Uh I would think, be thinking about the paper that Rompe and Mafuli published where they compared eccentric exercises to shockwave to wait and see. And they showed in that study that wait and see actually did very little, but that both eccentric exercises and shockwave uh, led to a significant improvement in the visa score. Uh, so that would, I think, could be interpreted that we shouldn't expect too much from just waiting and seeing. And I think what Robert Jan is getting at is that at the current time, we don't know whether it's really of added value to perform eccentric loading or that it's just important to load these tendons to try and improve their mechanical properties. Yeah. 
And uh, do you want to add to that? Do you want to comment on that, Robert, Jan? Yeah, I agree with Adam. Uh, I know the study of, of Rampi and Mafuli, and there was no uh, difference in VAS score, but there was a difference in the Visa A score. But, well, still, it's uh, wait and see. There's no placebo uh, effect, so um, uh, still it may uh, be caused by a placebo effect, the exercises. But uh, as a clinician, uh, I think it's beneficial then to uh, prescribe them. In terms of getting patients to do the exercises, my clinical experience is that it's much easier to motivate athletic patients to perform the exercises than the non-athletic population. I think athletes are more accustomed to the, the idea of no pain, no gain. And this is also what the studies prove. It's hard to achieve the results in the sedentary population. Okay. And so if we just summarize from the, the two of you, um, your clinical impression, Adam, why don't you just share with the listener how you explain the exercise program to the patients in the office? In the office, when I see athletes with tendinopathy of the, the Achilles, I would explain to them that the, that the, the tendon has microscopic damage uh, and that you can't get rid of this damage by resting the tendon. If you rest for long periods, you won't feel the pain because you're not loading the tendon. But as soon as you begin to do athletic activities again, then you'll discover that the tendon is not healed. You just haven't felt it for a long while. Uh, and that it's important to make the tendon more mechanically strong and able to bear the loads they need to do for their athletic activities, that they need to actually train the tendon up to make it strong enough to do what they want to do with their tendons. And that's the way I try and motivate people to, to get on the program and, uh, and be disciplined enough to follow it through. I'd like to add to that. Um, I think it's, it's really good to, uh, to motivate the patients. But the other side is that I think um, they have to know about the prognosis of, of tendinopathy. So I always tell them that uh, while the prognosis is unclear and that these injuries are very hard to treat, and well, I also like to be honest and um, uh, about it. I don't want to promise things I cannot realize. And uh, symptoms can persist for years and even recur after an asymptomatic period. And I think patients also have to know that that that's, that is uh, hard to treat conditions. I would totally agree with you there, as a, the a proud owner of a thickened left Achilles tendon myself. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And let's move on to ultrasound imaging. You've both got a lot of experience with that. And so let's begin, maybe, Robert Jan. Do you use imaging in your clinical practice and what do you recommend to our listeners? Uh, I do not use uh, imaging uh, for uh, tendinopathy. Uh, we proved in our studies that uh, well, we cannot provide a prognosis for the patients and uh, well, we cannot uh, guide treatment for it. Um, so uh, for me, uh, there's no reason to perform ultrasonography. Um, perhaps uh, an MRI scan uh, can give a better prognosis for the patients, uh, but it's a less available method and uh, it's also very expensive. So I, I do not uh, use it uh, in, in standard conditions. And Adam, do you ever use it? No, I think for me the the only reason to do imaging is sometimes because of social pressure, especially when dealing with elite athletes. 
then there's, it's more a case of meeting expectations. But it's not uh, uh, possible at present to give people a, a more accurate prognostic indication based on the imaging modalities that we have uh, with the with the ultrasound techniques, and that's a real shame. But uh, in that sense, I think it's fairly similar to osteoarthritis, that there's a huge discrepancy between tissue damage seen on imaging and pain experienced by the by the athletes that we see. And what about in certain challenging diagnostic situations? I think uh, the 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 mid portion Achilles tendinopathy is uh, for me is, is definitely just a clinical diagnosis, um, and in that sense, if you if you palpate a, a painful tendon in in the mid portion, two to seven centimeters above the distal insertion, and the the, the patient feels then their recognizable pain. If you can feel a, a thick and swollen tendon, and as you move the ankle into plantar and dorsal flexion, you can feel the, the swelling passing uh, between your fingers, then I think it's a, a good clinical diagnosis. And for me, then, ultrasonography or MRI scan wouldn't add anything to that. And on the research front, your group has pioneered a new type of ultrasound, and while it's not ready for prime time yet, Perhaps share with our listeners what might be coming down the pipes. Yeah, we used a, a novel method, um, which was uh, transferred uh, from uh, equine tendons to uh, to human uh, tendons. Uh, it was a validated technique in the equine tendons. Uh, so we thought uh, it was a, a really good technique to apply uh, to the human uh, tendinopathy. Um, it's it's a uh, uh, sort of a CT scanning uh, with use of ultrasound so we can uh, uh, image the tenon in uh, in three planes of view and um, well it's it's a really complicated technique to explain but um, basically uh, we use uh, the properties of the tendon uh, that the tendon bundles are in a straight line um, and that the consecutive transversal images there is a is a, a, a normal steadiness of the gray level. Um, so in cases of intact tenon bundles, we can um, well see a normal um, a gray level, a steady gray level in the consecutive transversal images. Uh, and in cases of tendinopathy, there's a loss of uh, organization of tendon structure. So really you're combining some three-dimensional perspectives like a CT scan with the convenience of ultrasound. Yeah, exactly. We use the properties of CT scanning while well, we applied it with uh, ultrasonography uh, and also uh, did some measurements with it. And I think as well as a clinician, uh, I was really impressed by the beauty of the images. Hans van Schie, the vet who, uh, who developed this and worked with our group, he uh, uh, developed the technique and it manages to translate a, a conventional gray ultrasound image into different color schemes. So for me as a clinician, it's translated to like red uh, and black tendon areas are, are bad, degenerative or tendinopathic, uh, and, and green and blue areas are good. And also for patients as well, this makes the, the interpretation of the ultrasound images very understandable. And when you're referring to that, is that going to be called ultrasound tissue characterization? Or when people are referring to this, what, what label should they use? We use uh, the ultrasonographic tissue characterization. 
well, we didn't really characterize the tendon tissue, um, but we also looked at the steadiness of the tendon bundles. And it was a very reproducible way to uh, to image the tendons and well, did in contrast to the conventional ultrasound, uh, which well, we, we don't know what the reproducibility is of a normal ultrasound. And uh, this method was was uh, had a high reproducibility. So uh, that's the reason why we used uh, this method. Yeah, congratulations. And listeners can read about this in the December BJSM which is all about various elements of imaging and your paper is there. Why don't you summarize for us the findings of that paper in relation to your PRP study? Well, we uh, also evaluated the patients uh, with use of ultrasonography, uh, not only the ultrasonographic tissue characterization, but also with our Doppler uh, ultrasonography. Um, we uh, first we evaluated uh, the tendon structure at baseline, and also at the follow-up moments at uh, six, twelve, and twenty-four weeks. Um, and we could quantify the tendon structure with use of the UTC. And we found that uh, uh, both in the uh, placebo group and the PRP group there was an increase in tendon structure, but there were no differences between both groups. And the same accounts for the neovascularization score, which we uh, measured with uh, Doppler uh, imaging. Uh, and we first uh, saw an increase in the neovascularization, and after that, a decrease. And after 24 weeks, both groups uh, uh, were at the, the same level uh, as baseline. And there were also no significant differences between both groups. And I have to ask, um, how do you feel about neovascularization um, as a clinically useful measure at the moment? Uh, well, I think uh, for neovascularization, uh, the same accounts uh, as for the conventional ultrasound. Um, we cannot predict uh, whether patients uh, will improve um, uh, based on uh, the neovascularization score at baseline. Uh, so, therefore, there's no reason for me to use it in, uh, in, in clinics. Um, well, perhaps there may be a relation with the pain at that moment, but uh, I can also ask that uh, to the patient. So, uh, I don't need an ultrasound examination for that. Uh, so, I do not use it uh, currently uh, in, in uh, clinical practice. Okay. And... Just as we're getting towards the end of this podcast, um, I just want to bring it back to PRP on other tissues because there's been interest for the use of PRP in muscle, of course, and uh, I know you've reviewed this in a systematic way and thought about it a lot. So your opinion on PRP for other sports medicine contexts? Uh, well, my, my opinion is the same as for tendinopathy only with a big difference that there are no no high-quality studies in, in muscle injuries, uh, not that I know. Um, so I think uh, well, the same accounts as for tendinopathy, there, there's no good evidence for it. Uh, so I wouldn't currently advise it to to the patients. Adam? Yeah, I would agree with Robert Jan on that one. I think right now, for me, there's not enough evidence to support the use of it in, in clinical practice with it being a, an expensive and uh, in, invasive treatment modality. 
so right now we're busy trying to gain medical ethical permission to, to start some studies looking at muscle injuries too and hope uh, to publish on this in, uh, in the not too distant future. But uh, for, for me, thinking about it as a clinician, it would seem less common sense to use it for muscle injuries because of the bleeding that happens there anyway. Um, so I'm not as optimistic about that as I was about PRP before we did the, the, the JAMA study. And were you expecting the JAMA study to work? That was your basic feeling? Yeah, I was really hoping for it. As a, as a sufferer myself as well, I would have been the first in the queue to get the job at the end of the study had it shown uh, it had an effect. And I wouldn't really think to go to all the efforts and put in all the work to design the study and, and, and do it if we didn't think that it would have helped. So it was a disappointment in that, in that sense that it didn't help. We were also supported by uh, the study of uh, Brown and Orchard in uh, 2006 who already found the beneficial effect of a sealant injection. And therefore, we could uh, inform patients that we expected an improvement in all of them. But, well, a better improvement uh, was expected in the PRP group. Okay. So, some of our listeners might be a bit depressed at this stage because you've said that PRP is no good. You said there's no use in using imaging. Um, Robert Yon is a bit of a skeptic about the exercise program even. So, let's let's think about what is possible. I mean, how do you treat these patients and how can we get them back to sport? Yeah, well, as a researcher, uh, I can be very straight because until now there's no convincing evidence for any treatment, perhaps uh, except for the eccentric exercise program. When I'm seeing a patient uh, with Achilles tendinopathy uh, in our outpatient clinic, I first tell them the prognosis, uh, that it's unclear, and that's a very hard to treat condition. Uh, my first treatment approach is to start of a heavy load eccentric exercise program. I try to uh, comply them and tell them that it's important to perform the total eccentric exercise program. And I'd also correct uh, severe uh, biomechanical abnormalities uh, with orthotics. And I also will search for some uh, internal disorders which may be of interest. I think the eccentric exercises can be continued for around half a year. Um, and I think after that, all options are to my opinion, uh, experimental for the non-responders. Uh, and I will openly discuss uh, the most uh, serious options between a wait-and-see policy and surgery. And I think the latter is a very last option, and we propose surgery only in the very persistent cases. Well, most of the patients choose to have uh, a shockwave session, uh, or, or several of them, um, because it's less invasive and um, I think effects can be seen after a few sessions. And well, I'm currently considering high volume injection, but I do not have experience with that. And Adam, a take home summary? Yeah, I agree with Robert Dunn. My, my first line of treatment is still always the heavy load eccentric exercise program. Uh, in that sense, I don't think it's depressing that we don't really find a role for PRP or imaging because I think we're saving our patients a lot of time and, and money. Um, so I see that myself, although it was disappointing as a, as a positive aspect to the studies we've done because we're not leading them on with false hope on, in that sense. Uh, and right now my, my second line would be correction of biomechanical problems and uh, also I'm using shockwave a reasonable amount. Uh, which we then refer on to local physical therapists who, who perform that for us. Great. Well, thanks, gentlemen. We'll need to leave it there for today. I will remind our listeners 
that Jill Cook has an associated podcast about the stages of tendinopathy. You can find Robert Yarn and Adam's paper in JAMA in January of this year. You can find their imaging paper at the BJSM in the December issue. And I'd also like to emphasize the BMJ learning sites. We have sports medicine through that site and Robert Yon has a paper on Achilles tendinopathy and Adam Weir has one on the difficult problem of adductor problems, chronic groin pain. Thanks for listening.